Hi, and welcome to The Fit, the fashion, innovation, and technology podcast hosted by eFitter, personalizing the shopping experience for you. My name's Judith. And I'm Elizabeth. And on The Fit, we delve into the complex world of fashion and tech with insights from industry players, old and new, and much, much more. Join us every other Monday for a new episode you do not want to miss. So it's officially happening. Our launch is a couple of weeks away, but before we reveal the date, we want to give you, our tribe, the opportunity to be first in line to shop with eFitter. It's really simple. All you have to do is sign up to our waitlist and refer a friend. The more friends you refer, the higher up on the waitlist you move. Head over to eFitterapp.com right now to be first in line. Join us as we count down the days to our much-anticipated launch and make sure you're following us on Instagram and Twitter at eFitterApp and as always, join the conversation using the hashtag FitPodcast. Today we're joined by Josephine, founder of Sojo, the delivery of clothing repairs, where you can get your favourite clothes mended without having to leave the house. Hi Josephine, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, how are you guys doing? All good, all good. We'll jump straight into it. So tell us, tell us about your journey, about you, about how you got into Sojo. Yeah, gosh, that's a quite an open-ended question. Um, but if we were to take it back probably to the start, it was um, around two years ago that I made a move away from fast fashion. Um, and that was because it didn't align with my feminist values. And so I basically, because I was a student, I started shopping secondhand uh, as my main port of call. Um, and that's where I faced like a huge problem, which was sizing. I basically was finding all these clothes that I loved. Um, there were these great secondhand clothes, whether that was thrift stores, kilo sales, online, whatever. And the fact of the matter is, is it wouldn't fit my exact body shape. You know, like the chances are that you find that right piece. It's just like so, so small. Um, so I sort of had this idea that great, I'm going to start altering my secondhand clothes. They fit me. Um, and I just did not have an easy or convenient way to do that. I didn't know how to sew at all. Uh, my mom doesn't know how to sew. I would sometimes go to my grandma. I didn't really know about a local seamster. And even if I did, again, it's a lot of time and effort. And basically I was like, how can I create something that will make this process really, really easy? Um, and in simple terms, that's kind of how the idea for Sojo came about. Awesome. So you personally, um, you don't have a background in entrepreneurship, but you saw a need. Um, I mean, you actually recently finished university. So what encouraged you to kind of make that leap as soon as you finished your degree into starting your own business? Yeah, so as much as I don't have a um, history in entre entrepreneurship, because I've just obviously been a student, I would say that it is sort of like that entrepreneurial gene that people have. So like I was selling on Depop throughout university, which is kind of like a small version of business. And equally, like it's sort of embarrassingly, whatever, I did start like a biodegradable tote bag company with like, feminist slogans and I was selling those at events and online and everything anyway that kind of gene is obviously in there and I think when I then had this problem point I was like I really want to solve it and I don't think I would have taken that big leap unless I sort of uh, until the fact that I realized that nobody was doing it and yet I felt like it was something that 100% should exist and I was like surely this would be something that is so commonplace and so good and so easy for so many people given that secondhand is growing so much and so it kind of wasn't like oh, I'm going to take this leap. It was like, if no one's doing it and I've had this idea, I want to do it. And I think also probably, obviously COVID sort of happened like right before I graduated and everything. But I think that kind of reaffirmed in myself that the job market was going to be crap anyway. Um, so I might as well do my own thing. Um, and yeah, to be honest, like it's been it's been amazing. Like I do think that even if it wasn't this idea, it would be another idea. But this sort of was the perfect one of the perfect timing. As Elizabeth mentioned, you dubbed Sojo the delivery of clothing repair. So for those listening that don't know, what is Sojo and how does it work? 
Yep, so Sojo is a three-sided marketplace, much like Deliveroo, um, and we connect customers to local seams to businesses through our app and bicycle delivery service so that people can get their clothes altered or repaired with a few simple clicks. That basically means you download the app, you type in your postcode, it shows you your local seamster, you have a read about them, you put in what you need done, you put when you want it to come be collected and we take care of the rest. So we collect it, fulfill it and drop it back to you. Um, and hopefully it allows you to get your clothes yeah, repaired and altered really, really easily. How important would you say it was to make sure that it was technology that was the way to solve the problem rather than you know, just connecting it as a small community within an area? Mm. I think technology was absolutely crucial, mainly because like when I had the idea, I was like, oh, I want a way to alter my clothes really easily. Um, and essentially everything is on our phones. Like we are used to things at our fingertips. If it's not going to be on my phone, it's probably not going to be the ideal solution because like as the convenience economy grows, people can get you know, food, their cab, their beauty services, whatever it is, it's all going to be on your phone. And so moving forward, I knew that was going to have to be the way. Not only that, that aspect of it being an app is so important as much as it is so much more scalable. So I literally can still say sitting here in London and I could actually feasibly right now, I mean, we're not doing it, but like I could have people who are riders and seems to sign up up North or whatever. And we have the app platform and it's a marketplace. So we're just connecting those two and the technology does that connecting. If I was involved in it or it was more community based or off app, I think it'd be a lot less easy to scale. And I think being able to scale is so crucial because it increases the amount of impact we're going to have, which is ultimately the whole mission and aim. It's so funny you mentioned um, the fact that, you know, sometimes you have clothes that you need to repair, you don't have the skill to do so, your mum's not having the skills mm. to do so, because um, a conversation that Judith and I had that um, our listeners will hear a little bit later on is about when you have that item of clothing that you love, mm. you know, you've got a hole in it, but you want to wear it again, and you don't really know what to do with it. Have you ever come across um, users or Sojo who say, okay, I know that I have a major mend in this item of clothing, which I adore, but I'd also love to learn more about how to do so myself. And is that a direction that you'd look at taking Sojo in? Yes and no. I think I have not had anyone who's asked um, us like whether they can learn how to do it themselves. I do think that there are already like some um, communities or platforms or sort of sewing classes that are dedicated to that. Um, we are really just filling that gap for the quote unquote lazy folk, like the people who don't want to do it themselves, don't want to learn, don't have a machine, don't know where to go. Like we are really feeling, and I do think that is the majority of people. Um, in terms of moving forward, I would say that the reason we're probably not going to move towards that side of things where we're teaching people how to sew um yes maybe on a smaller scale but fundamentally what we're doing is we're trying to connect people to people who have decades of experience and craftsmanship and they are the best at doing it and in terms of prolonging the life of clothes what's really important is not upcycling or repairing something badly that then makes you be like oh and now it's ruined like if you if you upcycle badly you chop 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 you do it and all that material is lost and then you don't like the end result and then that's the end of it really like it actually has not destroyed the item but I think there's something really important in understanding the importance of sort of like quality expertise um, and we really like to fill that gap now if it's starting a small hole I feel like that is something that is you know we will do cute tutorial videos on but especially when it comes to alterations and bigger repairs um, and especially when it comes to sentimental items I think that probably you should use Sojo. <laughs> 
No, I agree. I also feel like because you are also connecting consumers with seamstresses that are, and seamstresses who have probably been in the industry for years and with the lockdown especially would have had um, an impact on their customers or potential customer base, it is important to, you know, ensure that that connection is still happening. So 100% agree. You mentioned your history of entrepreneurship, which I love selling secondhand clothes on Depop, but you know, what was your experience building a startup in lockdown? Like, would you say that lockdown influenced the direction of the business at all? Yeah, so I think there's the two parts to that question. One, what was my experience of building a startup full stop? I mean, then the fact that it's obviously in lockdown, both horrific. Um, no, I'm joking. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually been, I mean, it's been what it's been, you know, like I think you guys know really hard but really amazing as well. I think particularly lockdown, the way that it probably impacted the business, as you mentioned, was the fact that the seamsters weren't necessarily open and doing business as usual. And a lot of seamsters that we'd planned to launch with, um, they were closed due to lockdown and then they didn't want to work with us during lockdown in sort of the contact-free way. Um, so essentially they're still just shut and they're just at home and they're not getting any business and that's fine, that's their decision. Um, but that meant that we delayed our launch for sort of six weeks and then we realised that lockdown was seemed like actually quite inevitable and um, unending, sorry. Um, so we delayed it from like November and we were going to do it at the beginning of January and then we realised lockdown was still going to go on. And so we basically tried to work away around doing it so for some of our seamsters we do just message to be like we're going to be dropping things off monday at 10 can you be in the shop they collect it they do it the you know the shop door is closed to customers um but we are sort of their contact free way of doing things so sort of working that out and having more of a close relationship in terms of like the messaging and making sure logistics work from that side of things has been sort of the crucial aspect of making sure we can launch in lockdown now, a lot of our listeners will actually be familiar with Sojo. Um, you know, we've spoken about Sojo on our Instagram. I'm sure they would have seen Sojo around Impress. So I, I want to know a little bit more about the experience for you going from, you know, being a student to being one of the voices of sustainable fashion in London. What was that like for you, um, you know, getting all of that press, getting all that attention, but also having a voice that is respected in that space? Whew. Um, how is that for me? Yeah. I mean, I feel like, again, probably a relatable feeling, hell a lot of imposter syndrome going on here, like people asking me to be a voice of expertise. Now, to be honest, like, I probably do have more expertise than, you know, another person. And I have been living this and learning this and studying the market even for now, definitely a year and a half. But even before that, like my move into sustainable fashion, that community, that teachings, those learnings, the books, the podcasts, like I do have the expertise at the same time you cannot help the niggling feeling of being like, oh, should I be in this space? And should I be speaking on this? When A, so many more people know more than me. B, like there's still so much to learn or like C, like I, I moved into sustainable fashion because of my feminism and because of the issues of, you know, the oppression and exploitation of garment workers in the supply chain. That is why I moved in. And I do know from research and from readings, like a lot about that at the same time, when, when someone does ask me to speak on that, I feel like, in my privileged position of being sort of a Western person who hypocritically used to shop fast fashion, I'm sitting here in my London flat, like who am I to speak about them, their experience or what goes on in the supply chain of fast fashion companies? Like I 
it should be more about platforming their voices, but they're so often overlooked and it's so, there's so there's such a lack of transparency that it's really hard to even find out that narrative anyway. Um, and I've just said quite a lot there and it's really convoluted, but essentially it's been amazing because like fundamentally I do want to speak on my passions and I do want to convince, educate and help other people on the journey that I've been on and, and that I'm still on. Um, at the same time, you can't help but be like, wow, what am I doing here? And it's crazy that these people are asking to talk to me. <laughs> I think you raise a really valid point that we speak about often, which is, you know, use the shop fast fashion. And that is the reality for every single one of our listeners. Mm. Um, some of us still shop fast fashion, but the reality is there are ways to be conscious about what you're buying, even if you can't afford to be to buy high and sustainable clothing. And, you know, an example of that would be using Sojo to fix your Primark jumper. So everyone's journey is different but also you run a business that is built on sustainability so I'm kind of like there is no better person to speak on this I mean you know you've built a business around this so by virtue that that kind of makes you an expert in this field Mm. and it's true and I do think like to be honest as much as like whatever feeling I have is whatever feeling I have at the same time I really should and I know I should be owning it a bit more and I I have now been doing this for a year and a half, this specific business in this specific space, as much as it's taken ages to get that, I'm talking about from point of conception of the idea, I then did months of market research and making sure I understood everything. And like, I do think that I should own the narrative and own the space, um, given that like what essentially I'm going to do as well is dedicate my life to trying to change the fashion industry to make it more circular. And therefore, if I am doing that, and it is what I live every single day, why should I not be the one to talk on it? So yeah, thank you for saying that I should, because I should. (laughs) Um, so you just touched on you touched on this repeatedly about um, you know the intersection between sustainability and feminism. Um, so I'd like us to take a step back. So um, we have a we've had an episode about conscious consumer activism where we spoke at length about you know the experience that mostly female garment workers have in the developing world when we are buying fast fashion items. Mm. So our listeners will have like a basic understanding of that intersection. But can we explore that in a little bit more depth? So um, what is that intersection and what inspired you to learn more about that in particular? And you mentioned your feminism led to Mm. sustainability rather than the other way around, which is often Mm. the case. So what was that journey like for you? Yeah, so essentially for me, like I came out of um, sixth form feeling like a staunch feminist, like really... um, anti-men no I'm joking but like I sort of that's how that's how it was you know um and I was just very like pro-women love women women are amazing women everything like I love women um and then I realized that something that I was supporting was like directly oppressing women and I don't know where that education piece came from I don't know how I started to uncover that because as I said like the transparency is minimal and the whole point is they try and hide it so I never ever question consumers when they are still shopping fast fashion and they don't know or they're still on a journey in that sense like fundamentally a lot of people also don't have the choice to shop um you know sustainable but essentially like I was becoming aware of it and I suddenly was just like as I put my money into these brands like my money what I'm doing is like I'm endorsing that so here I am being like woo women love them but it was so in a bubble of western feminism like really just like pro-women free the nip like all that kind of thing and like what I was actually doing was I was funding companies that didn't respect Um, women and we're exploiting them and in many cases like it was actually violent and it was bad in terms of true human rights violations and everything and and not only was I 
fueling companies that did, that did that to women. I was also paying for these white men at the top to become billionaires. I literally was being like, you know, instead of actually shopping from small businesses who I really valued and who were, you know, had really healthy supply chains or were sustainable, what I was doing was I was fueling, you know, a very, very unhealthy, toxic work supply chain, you know, company culture. Um, I think for me, I then sort of, there's no going back I think when you start to learn like I then started doing my own research and again as I say the transparency is minimal but there are so many stories and narratives that are very common in it which is that like these women not being paid much like literally pittance if at all sometimes they don't get paid at all sometimes there is child labor involved there's modern slavery involved sometimes they um they get fired because they're pregnant and they completely lose their work like you know they're not going to get maternity pay and maternity support they're not allowed to go for toilet breaks because of how much they're overworked and how much they have sort of a quota to fill that day sometimes there's issues around sanitary products and things like that which is huge women's rights violation and beyond that there's a lot of sexual assault and sexual harassment that happens in the workplace in over all countries and across all sectors like specifically in the garment worker industry and and also beyond that like if they try and unionize, they're stopped. Sometimes if they protest, they're killed in the streets. The actual buildings are really, you know, really dangerous. Obviously, the Rana Plaza disaster. But beyond that, there are so many fires. And, and also there's not air conditioning. And there's often like a lot of hospitalizations from sort of dehydration. It's just it's a culture of complete exploitation and like oppression. Like they are not being treated or valued well. And learning that and seeing that, it really, there was no going back for me. Not only did I sort of not want to support that brand, but I'm, as I said, I'm now entirely invested in sustainable fashion and changing a culture around clothing and making everything slow down because it's the fastness of it and the pace of it and the requirements from sort of capitalism that has made this this system work. Um, and I think that slowing everything down, respecting what they're doing, their craft and everything like that and allowing the space for sort of, for room, you know, I just... I don't know. I think that, yeah, it's really, it's really the center part for me. And as much as Sojo is actually really relating to the end of life stage and the customer stage for me, like that is quite a driving force. And that is my ultimate reason why I'm in this space. I, I love that. And I, I really feel like, you know, we've touched upon this topic many a time. I don't think we'll ever really stop mm. because it's so, so important to mm. always remember the women, you know, that are working to, clothe us you know mm. um and one thing that you know one episode I think it was the episode with um Swati and Devi um talking about conscious consumer activism and they are just amazing mm. what they're doing mm. them in Venetia as well um it also you know there were things I didn't know and I, mm. I think that's one thing I, I want people to understand it's like mm. always going to be a learning curve you're always going to be learning about you know the disparity between you know men and women garment workers full stop mm. and then females female garment workers mm. experiences um mm. no unions allowed you know working conditions are poor there's so mm. many to think about mm. and the more you know the more informed you can be about each purchase you make and i think that's, mm. that's really so important we'll be back to this conversation in a sec but in the meantime here's our take on what's happening in the world of fashion and tech if there's one thing sustainable fashion has benefited from, it's virtual and digital experiences. QR code marketing platforms like QR Code Generator Pro are playing a central role in increasing transparency between consumers and sustainable fashion. How much more can the marrying of both physical and digital worlds benefit sustainability? Okay, so this is interesting to me because, um, so I've bought one item of clothing, or I did one set of shopping this year from ASOS, and I didn't notice that they have this QR code thing where you can track where your clothes were made or whatever. Didn't use it. 
because honestly, I don't know if I had the time to. I think it was on the cardboard label and I kind of just throw that away as soon as I get it. But I was like, oh, okay. So I wonder whether it's like a generic, oh, this is how we made your clothes or if it's leveraging blockchain to some degree. So, um, you know, for anyone who doesn't really understand what blockchain is, so cryptocurrencies are built on blockchain and blockchain is basically the technology that enables you to kind of track where something originated from. So it's really useful fashion, for example, because in theory, you could look at a particular item of clothing and know where the cotton was harvested and grown, where it was shipped to, how it was manufactured, what the journey was of that item of clothing due to blockchain technology. So um, yeah, it's been something that's been on my mind lately. I think what I'm loving about these tech like blockchain and QR codes is that it ensures this level of transparency that we would not get as consumers previously and it also gives this illusion of okay if I can see you know the materials I can understand where it's come from like the journey it's had it's also this accessibility you know um, and also for me I think what I'm most interested about is QR codes showcasing outfits on models in different sizes. That's something else that the article alluded to. And I feel like that is really, really interesting because everyone has access to QR codes. So it'll be really cool to see what brands do with that. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it impacts wearables. But do you know what came to mind? Apart from QR codes, um, all the hype this week has been around NFTs. So non-fungible tokens. Um, for anyone who's been seeing this acronym and has no clue what that means, a non-fungible token is basically a thing that cannot be exchanged for something else that is different of the equivalent value. So um, an example would be uh, money, money, cash. So um, I could give someone a £20 note or I could give them two £10 notes. That's fungible because there's an equivalent version that is different. But a non-fungible token is basically something that generally is one of a kind. So um, a weird thing that's been happening over the last few months is there's been this massive boom in trading cards, like sports trading cards, and they've been digitized. And that has in part led to the boom of NFTs, but also we're seeing it in digital art. Like I think there was a record sale of a digital art piece. But in fashion, this could be linked to a conversation that we had before about um, digital clothing like selling stuff on games, for example, when you're buying actual fashion items, digitally virtual fashion items. So I I don't know what I think of it yet. Like, I don't know if it's just a trend that's gonna kind of disappear in a few months. I mean, it has happened before, but it'll be interesting to see if that actually changes the way that we engage with digital fashion. How can fashion retailers improve their supply chains? The short answer, fashion retailers must look to leverage technology Tech such as digital twin technology provides a more sustainable and profitable approach to supply chain strategizing without creating excessive waste. But skeptics think the lack of implementation will delay any signs of improvement. So we've spoken about this before. What are your thoughts? I agree. I feel like the issue with tech or tech in fashion is not that, you know, it's not advanced enough to do the things that we hope it would do for the sustainability community or the sustainability conversation. The issue is the adoption of this tech. It's like little to none and one thing that the article did mention was like it's not really about you know the accessibility or the the chance for these brands to actually adopt the tech is that none of them actually are implementing it it's not a priority for them so my thing is we can you know push for the 
for technology to advance the supply chain, you know, to, to either be more transparent or to be more sustainable in its production of these garments. But if it's not widely adopted, I don't think it can be as effective as it could be if everyone was on board. And I think they gave the example of Boohoo, you know, their strategy has been to acquire these brands. It's not got anything to do with changing or revolutionizing the supply chain. It's more to do with just how can we make more money? Do you know what came to mind? Um, I think this time last year, we were talking about H&M launching this initiative that would help other brands have like a more transparent or eco-friendly supply chain. Um, and I actually haven't heard a single thing about it since. And I have been looking it up and I've been trying to see, okay, what's been the progress? And I don't know whether it's because they've just had low adoption, but also from my point of view, the bigger brands, like you said, if they want to do it, they're already doing it. They've already got their ways to do it. But if they're not, it's because they don't want to. But for smaller brands, like um, we spoke to, I think it was when we spoke to Beth at Karma, and um, we're talking about how smaller brands can kind of make their supply chain more streamlined and she said something along the lines of um small brands often can't prioritize making their brand more streamlined or more eco-friendly because i think it was beth because um they've got to prioritize making money in the first instance and the supply chain or streamlining it is often secondary if it's at the cost of making the actual product so i we're kind of in a weird impasse where Brands are not being created with that core aim in mind of being super, um, you know, waste free, but also the bigger brands have no real incentive to change the way that they're manufacturing. So I don't know, man. It's, it goes back to that question where it's like, whose responsibility is it to make a brand sustainable and what's going to incentivize them to do that? And I still think the answer is government. British luxury fashion retailer Farfetch has partnered with product aftercare company The Restry to offer its customers an accessible garment repair service. Like many companies, they have sustainability targets for the next 10 years as part of their ethos to be a platform for good championing initiatives that make fashion more sustainable. That's a lot of words. Have you ever repaired anything you own? Just first off. Um, yeah. So shout out to GCC Textiles. So <laughs> <laughs> no, for real, like um, when I was younger, I, I mean, even now to some degree, I always had a habit of repairing clothing. And at the time it came from a place of need because when I was younger, like in my teens, we just didn't have the money to be buying new clothes all the time. Like I just didn't have trend-based stuff. So if I have a small hole in something and it's still wearable and it's something I love, then I'm just going to go out my way to fix it. And I guess to like patch an item, honestly, it's not that much work. It doesn't take any learning. I don't remember watching a YouTube tutorial but then there's still this part of me where I'm just like, oh my God, I'd love to make all my own clothes. Like sit on the sewing machine and make my clothes. I would love that. How about you? You know what, when I was reading the article, I was like, hang on a minute, I have actually done this, but not like by hand. Uh, no, not by hand. I mean, I had this jumper that I got, I think it was from Primark years ago, and it had like a hole in the arm. I think for time, I just wore it like that because I was just like, I love this jumper and no one's going to be looking, like, I'm not lifting my hand, so it's fine. And then I think it got to a point where it was like, okay, this is really bad. So I think I must have stitched it. Um, obviously, it didn't last long after that. And then I think recently, I think I would say 2019, there was this dress I got from Zara, um, which I loved and I still have. I'm literally going to wear it tomorrow. And I was like, the, the hem of it just fell apart. Like, it just fell apart. So I just took it to my local dry cleaners and I said, ma'am, please, like I, I need to fix this because I love this dress. And since then it's been fine. So yeah, I think the repair conversation or the repair 
sector of fashion is it's suddenly come up i i feel like and it's been a mainstream conversation paired with you know ethical fashion sustainable fashion looking after your clothes love clothes last all of that um so i really do love that farfetch you know have jumped on that and i i love that it's the luxe as well luxury fashion brands which means that they do understand that you know clothes are expensive do need to be looked after yeah i mean if i'm going to spend four thousand pounds on the dress if there's a tiny hole in it i like no i'm gonna get that repair like i'm not gonna buy another version of that so i'm glad that the luxury brands are seeing the need there um, but also, yeah, as you mentioned, tailors have always been around, dry cleaners have always been around. This has always been an option. But I think because our culture is just so rooted in, you know, disposable shopping, that it just never really occurred to people. And also, I think part of the reason we're maybe seeing a boom is because we're being encouraged to love the items that we have rather than just buying them. So when you shop against a trend or when you shop for something you actually want, you're going to want to continue wearing it even if it has a hole in it, even if you grow out of it, like you're going to find a way to restyle it. So I think as we continue to slow purchasing, slow shopping, then hopefully we're going to see more of these initiatives. Going back to your experience as a founder, what has been the biggest lesson you've learned since launching um, Sojo? Because obviously you are a solo founder. Mm. Um, fostering a sense of community, building a community on, it, on your own, it's hard and then building a business behind the scenes you know working the back end the admin everything by yourself I do not know how you do it um how have you fostered a sense of community and with your customers and with other founders so in terms of my um yeah my experience um since launching and experience as a founder like my biggest learning is probably um that it is like simultaneously the most amazing and best thing ever and also the worst thing ever um, that I could ever put myself through. Like, it's literally like, it, I'm so passionate every day. I'm so happy every day that I'm pursuing my dream and a mission and something that really makes me feel fulfilled. And it feels amazing. And then like, also I just feel so much pressure and so much stress and like work myself to death. And I think there's this like huge dichotomy between these two things. Um, so that's my biggest learning is that like, I think moving forward, that's just how it is. Like, it's really great and it's really hard. And that is that is the life of an entrepreneur. Um, and then in terms of like the community, like I think that is one thing that I cannot tell you how much it keeps me going. Like. I honestly, I mean, sometimes I know it's because I'm hormonal, but like I'll read a review um, that comes up on the app store and I'll just be in tears for the next 10 minutes being like, it's so worth it. Like everything I've done is the most like, I, it just like, it makes me feel, it makes me feel so happy. And like the community being there, the community commenting and liking and saving and sharing everything that we're creating is so meaningful to me. And especially on the education piece so we did a piece from International Women's Day about why fast fashion is a feminist issue and it got shared like hundreds of times and all I thought was like amazing that our impact on this matter is probably like getting being spread to so many people that day and that made me feel really fulfilled and I think being able to have that community online as much as um, social media is draining and it takes up a lot of time um, it's also it fuels me and it's one thing that has like kept me going because I'm like look at all these people who are interested and also look at all these people who are supporting me um so that's been really amazing we're in March and March is International Women's Month and you know like you mentioned um it's you know you posted um an amazing post about you know garment workers female garment workers the realities of fast fashion and it got shared and spread wide now turning the conversation towards women founders in tech, mm. how the community of female tech founders is for you in the UK? Um, 
and how what's been your experience in just in general building um as, as a black woman as well yeah um I don't know like I think I think to be honest I don't have much to say on it and as much as like for me I've probably kept my head quite down and just done the work so like I mean obviously like I haven't coded the actual app myself and I have a software engineer or two software engineers um but like in terms of doing the work I just mean I don't know I feel like I haven't fostered enough of a community with um other founders and other female tech founders in the space like I love you girls and I know I've got support from you guys there but I think we actually should hang out more and we should chat more and we should you know like I really enjoy when we chat but I feel like I'm so busy and you're so busy and all the female tech founders are so busy that actually creating that space and time to just chat and like hang out and support is actually really difficult um because you never you know you never create that space but I, I definitely should and I should hold myself accountable to it mainly because it's difficult and to be able to share in that experience is really important like it's it's really difficult um in so many different ways I feel so much pressure um I mean you guys can attest to this as well but sort of just like feeling like and I don't want to put myself on like some high or whatever but the, that you're sort of a spearhead in some ways or like you have to get it right because of x y and z and if they're not investing in women you know, if they're investing in 2.8, if 2.8% of the investment goes to women and then beyond like within that, there's even way less that goes to black women. Say I'm the chance that they take going, you know, investing in this black female company. Obviously I want it to go well so that they then invest in the ones to come after me and everything. And I think that there's a lot of pressure for myself as a person, as a solo founder to succeed individually. I want to succeed for my family. I want to succeed just in general, but then I also want to succeed for women and I want to see succeed for black people and black women. And like, I just want to make sure it goes right. And that's a lot of pressure. And I think that being able to chat, talk to you guys and everything is so important. And I definitely, I think I should do more on that. Um, Cause also it's just really fun as well. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, you built a whole business in lockdown and we've spoken about how difficult it is to network in lockdown and meet new people. I mean, we've never met in real life. So yeah. <laughs> Hopefully when we leave lockdown, which is going to be very, very soon, that's going to change. It'll be a lot easier to have that sense of community and meet for brunch and stuff. So what's next for Sojo? Uh, next for Sojo is um, growth, really. So like we've sort of proven the model. We've proven that we have fulfilled these orders for these people. And it's actually worked and they're happy and they're coming back, which is amazing, which means it's time I mean, I know that this isn't the stereotypical thing, but like, it's time to scale. Um, I really want to grow beyond London. Well, first grow beyond zones one and two within London. Then I want to go to Brighton and Bristol and then sort of all UK cities, then Europe and then worldwide domination. So that is what's next for Sojo is <laughs> basically changing and shaking up the industry and making sure we're doing thousands upon tens of thousands of repairs and alterations a day um, so that we're making the industry more circular um, and we're doing our bit is the plan but in terms of like actually tangibly what's next next um yeah it's just spreading out of london zones one to two <laughs> where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about you and sojo Yep. If you guys want to know more about Sojo and want to get involved, please follow us on Instagram at Sojo app, because um, that's where we're building our community and we have amazing, great content on there. And then also make sure you download the app Sojo on the App Store and Google Play um, and basically give our service a go and let me know what you think. I really, really want as many people as possible to get involved. So I'm looking forward to you guys joining. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for joining us, Josephine. We had so much fun. And yes. <laughs> absolutely love this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Fit. For more updates, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at eFitterApp or follow us with the hashtag TheFitPod. 
Don't forget to like us, rate us, comment, engage however you listen to your podcasts. It's really important for us so that we can get the word out there. See you soon. Bye.